Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you guys here with us once again after our short hiatus. We're, I mean, hiatus is a strong term for skipping a week. But, <laughs> for skipping but I a like week it. due to being ridiculously busy. It, it makes us sound more professional, you know, we're over here right. taking a hiatus. Right, professionals have those. So maybe a sabbatical. Ooh, there we go. I, I could use a sabbatical. Anyways, lots has gone on in the last two weeks. There's lots that we have to cover. Most of it we won't cover, as is our, our standard MO. But we'll definitely cover some of it. You know, the, the war in Ukraine is is waging on. Um, it's absolutely crazy over there. Um, Ukraine has done an incredible job of withstanding Russia, and I'm incredibly impressed with them. Um, starting to see some frustration from Putin, which is always nice to see. Um, so that's been going on. On top of that, another interesting thing that's been going on that people have paid a lot of attention to is the economy. You know, inflation has been going up for many months now. I mean, since since all of last year, basically, inflation has slowly been rising and it's been on people's minds. With the stark increase in gas prices, though, there's been a renewed interest in the increased inflation. There's been a, a renewed interest in what's been going on with the economy. And as a response to that, uh, President Biden recently tweeted this Monday about the economy. And now I'm going to read the tweet. He said, quote, our economic strategy has worked and it's still working. And then he lists some, some ways in which it's worked. We created 6.7 million jobs last year. Unemployment is down to 3.8%. Our economy grew at 5.7% last year. And we reduced the deficit by $360 billion last year. And looking at that list, it all sounds like incredible accomplishments. And, and truly staggering accomplishments. I mean, creating almost 7 million jobs, you know, 6% economy growth almost, you know, fantastic unemployment rates, you know, decreasing the deficit. All of those things are absolutely fantastic. What's interesting, however, is, is that I, I see one glaring inaccuracy in this tweet, and only one. And that glaring inaccuracy is in is in Biden saying our economic strategy has worked because he's crediting all of these things with his economic strategy, with with the things that he has done to help the economy. When in reality, all of these things are a direct result of, well, I mean, in, in, in the political sense, it's all a direct result of Biden not doing something. And the thing he didn't do, that I'm very glad he didn't do, is stop the economy from reopening. It is something that we were concerned that he might do. And in reality, uh, President Biden took office and didn't actually do that much in terms of COVID. And because of that, the states over the past year have reopened and have rehired many of the people who lost their jobs. And because of that, the economy has exploded. And in fact, if you look at these numbers and break them down one by one, you can see that that's the case. In February of 2022, guess where the unemployment rate was at? 3.5%. But 
in March of 20 uh, in April of 2022, you know, March, April around there, it jumps up to 14.7%. Was that 2021? No, 2020. Sorry, what did I say? If 20, you said 2022. Whoa, that would be crazy. My bad. The, <laughs> like, the years hey, escape me. You know, are you, you predicting the future? I am predicting the future. <laughs> Next month. Next month, we're going to be back up to 14.7%. Okay, so, Sorry, guys. So we started 3.5 and then by a, a year later. No, two months later. Sorry. Two months all later. All 2020. This is let all me, 2020. Let okay. me retry. February of 2020, we were at 3.5% unemployment rate. So lower than we are now. And two months later in April of 2020, we were at 14.7%. 14? Yes. I was distracted by the dates. 14% is insane. Yeah, 14% is absolutely insane, but 14.7%. And then starting in 2020 and leading all the way up until now, we slowly rehired those people. So there were huge layoffs at the very beginning and a huge number of people who stopped working for COVID-related reasons. And then over the past two years, those people have been rehired, which is millions upon millions of people. And that's fantastic. But saying we created 6.7 million jobs is absolutely inaccurate. Those jobs were there. We just weren't using them. You know what I mean? Those businesses were closed down and then reopened. Yeah, if by creation we mean today I tell you your business needs to shut down and tomorrow I tell you it's open and then I get credit for creation. Yeah, for creating that job is inaccurate. You right. get credit for getting out of the way, absolutely. Right. You, absolutely. You, because oh, Biden could have – President Biden could, could have. have – He could have locked down the economy further. He could have kept pushing the COVID fight in ways that he talked about but never really did. You know what I mean? Yeah. And people are probably listening to this and they're going, wait, he did push the COVID fight. No, not in the way that we're talking about. We, we were, the fear was when he took office, uh, the states had, the federal government had done a bunch of stupid things. But, but beside those things, besides those things, most of it was left to the individual states. Yeah, there had never been a federal mm-hmm. lockdown. You know what I mean? Yes. There, yes. There, there wasn't even a federal mask mandate. You know what I mean? Which Biden yeah. talked about doing, but never actually did. Yeah, and I don't know what it would have taken constitutionally for it to happen, but the fear was, and and the fear for those of us who, who thought the lockdowns were a poor choice, and the hope of all the people who elected Biden was that he could centralize that and mm-hmm. and then impose a countrywide lockdown mm-hmm. or some or, you know, or countrywide mask mandates and things like that. Um, and he never did. Uh, things continued functioning uh, more or less as they had under in in the most significant ways, which is what the states determined to do, as they had under Trump. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, really, the national response between Trump and, and Biden was not that different, no. except in mm-hmm. terms of of tone. how they presented it. Yeah, tone, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But not in the actual policies. It wasn't that different. And then, so so that answers the, the 6.7 million jobs, the unemployment, and the economy, because all of those things were directly tied to COVID. But then some of you may be saying, well, he reduced the deficit by $360 billion, and that's absolutely huge. And I'd say, I agree, that is huge, but you need to take that with a grain of salt. Because in 2019, the federal deficit, which is how much we're overspending, you know, we're spending this much more than we actually have, right? 
In 2019, the federal deficit was just under $1 trillion, so it was very close to $1 trillion, which is an insane amount of money, right? In 2020, because of the COVID-19 pandemic response, that number was over $3 trillion. So we went from spending $1 trillion more than we actually had to spending over $3 trillion more than we had. And then in 2021, that number drops to under $3 trillion, you know, about two and three quarters trillion, which is still an insane amount. But President Biden's absolutely correct. That's $360 billion less than the year before. Right. But it's not exactly something that I would be proud to, to show my parents that report card. You know, it'd be like if you went from getting, you know, straight Bs, because it's not like a, a trillion is good, from getting straight Bs to, to getting a, you know, a D minus, and then you come back the next year and you got just a D or a D plus. It's like, good, that's improvement. Yes. But we're not, we're not out of the woods. Yeah. It's, it's better than last year, but not, not into a sustainable or a good future. Exactly. That's why. I did, that's why I chose D's instead of C's. You know? Yes, this is not getting you into college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, it's interesting, and I, you're right. Every every one of these claims is probably factually uh, correct. Maybe depending on how you define created, um, the job creation numbers have always been. Creation has always had a huge asterisk by it. Well, and that's why he says we, because technically (laughs) you could argue that he's saying we, the American people, created 6.7 million jobs. So technically, yeah, but it implies we, President Biden and team, created. Yes, but even created, right, it assumes that it was not there and then it's there. Yeah, and that one, Uh, you're right, that one is definitely There's something weird there, but but that's how they, that's not his problem, right? That's just how we normally talk about jobs and Mm -hmm. politics. Um, yeah, it, it's funny. We, we have a mystical sense that, that it's funny. The, the phrase, the buck stops here. If you haven't heard that in politics, I'll be surprised. The buck stops here. I don't remember which president said it. Um, since they said it, the idea was I, I'm taking responsibility for everything. Um, I'm the person at the top. I'm going to be, res- be responsible for it. And if there's a failure, you can blame me. Um, and since then, we've, we've increasingly got a mystical sense that the president is responsible for when it rains and when the sun shines and wants credit for them. I feel, mm-hmm. I feel like there has to be a causal connection between the economic strategy and the appearance of jobs for there to be any credit given, mm-hmm. <laughs> for there to be some kind of, but that's not how we talk about the president. It's like, there's a war in Ukraine, clearly Joe Biden's fault. Uh-huh. Right. Right. He wasn't, he wasn't strong, a strong enough present, president or whatever, maybe, right? It's just, it's just, there are now, there are lots of problems, Joe no, Biden, and but I, I strongly disagree with the political pundits who will get on and they'll just hammer him for things that are like the sun shining. And it's also a, a classic political strategy that when you're out of power, it's, yeah. it's all the president's fault. Yes. And as soon as you're in power, it's, it's somebody else's fault. Because the, the thing that President Biden failed to mention here and, and for some reason left out is the fact that we have um, the highest year-over-year inflation rate since uh, 1982. So the highest a 40-year high in terms of inflation, which is crazy, right? Obviously, 
that's not going to look good for President Biden. And President Biden has had several responses to that inflation. The first one being talking about all the other good things that he has done that that were really just a result of of COVID being over, for the most part anyways. Right. And and then the, a couple of other things he's done is he started to play the blame game. Um, a recent thing that he's done is he started targeting the shipping industry. You know, for a long time, the White House has talked about the shipping crisis as being responsible for the shortages because they don't want to call mm-hmm. it inflation. They just want to call it shortages because that's all that's caused it is just these shortages, which is not accurate. Um, but he's pledged to try and lower costs by uh, by messing with the shipping industry. He's going to increase competition in the shipping industry. He's going to investigate antitrust violations. Basically, the shipping industry is taking advantage of people, and that's why prices have gone up. And once once the White House steps in, it'll all be okay. And then, of course, the other thing that he's done. <laughs> we plug our our episode about the unions having to. Finally, having to work twenty four seven. Yes, absolutely. In the limited dock space, <laughs> like, the shipping industry is screwing over a lot of people, and they've they've done it through the legalization of their union system yeah, there and, in and California and other places. And he's not wrong. It's just he's he's, he's selling it quite. In a, the terms he's using are are making it mm-hmm. seem like this is a, a big business issue per se. And. Heaven knows big business has all kinds of issues. This is one of those rare moments where it's the union meets local government, which is not that common anymore. And then the other thing that Biden has done is he's he's tried to blame it on Putin, which which may seem confusing to some because the Ukraine crisis has the Ukraine war has not been going on that long. You know, it's been it's been going on for several weeks now. And of course, everyone knows that a month ago, inflation was at 2%, and then the Ukraine war started, and now we're looking at close to 8%, and thus it's all because of the Ukraine war. Right, Dan? Right. right. This is There's no problem with that chain of causality at all. That this this war that started like like a month ago tops right no no I mean the economic impacts you could trace back further than that because there there were mm-hmm. there were people drawing pulling out of those places as the buildup was happening but yeah but but that doesn't match the inflation rate if you look at the inflation rate in the United States starting in March of last year so a full year ago. It started to drastically increase. March of last year, it jumped to 2.6% versus 1.68% the month before. So a 1% increase in one month is crazy. And then it continues to to increase. You know, it jumps up to 4% the next month and then 5%. And then it continues to increase, you know, and then it drops down just a hair, kind of slows down in the middle of 2021 where it's kind of steady around 5%. And then once again, it starts to increase so that by December of 2021, we're at 7%. So months before anything has happened in Ukraine, we were at you know, a 7% inflation rate. And yet Biden is trying to pin all of that on Putin, which is of course, you know, a PR game. It's a political game that if we can tie this to the 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 war in Ukraine, 
people are not going to blame me for it. And it's yeah. the same thing we talked about with the oil sanctions, where by sanctioning the oil, uh, Biden was able to make the increase in gas prices become a patriotic thing that's associated with our fight against Russia, when in reality, you know, those gas prices would have gone up either way, and those gas prices had already gone up before the war had started. You know, gas prices were already high, and now they're they're going even higher. And, and part of that is absolutely because of the war, right. but only a very small part of it has anything to do with those oil sanctions. Yeah, thus far. Uh, we'll mm -hmm. see if the impact on this that plays out. It, it may be that that will... That will become Increase, a greater yeah. portion mm -hmm. if we, and that we'll see significant increases in inflation on on those unrelated goods. But it's, but for now, uh, most of the cost you're seeing, like you were saying, has nothing to do with with it, uh, with the war in Ukraine. I love the he keeps calling it uh, Putin's Putin's uh, price Putin's hike. Price hike. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which is which. I love that that and. and it sounds a lot like we're bashing on Biden. Biden's the one with the responsibility and the power, and that makes it makes him the target, right? He's the one by which that everyone's judging. That sounds like exactly what Trump would have called it. That seems like exactly what Trump, <laughs> if you if you just switched them places and this and there was inflation and then uh, this stuff with Putin, he would have called it Putin's price hike. Like mm -hmm. that seems like a very Trump thing to do to assign an actual, not just be like. The Ukraine war, you know, but no, yeah. Putin's to personify price, it like, like that, right? Right, and get like a specific person that is hated and attach them to it. Um, and and maybe that's just a sign of the impact he's had on politics in general. That that, that is what the team Biden decided would be the most effective tactic would be to actually label it like that. No, and 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 just real quick, speaking of the Biden bashing, it's worth noting that that uh. That year in 2020, where we broke the three trillion dollar mark in terms of deficit, that was under you know Trump's watch. That was that was President Trump, not President Biden, who was you know who was signing into law stimulus package after stimulus package after stimulus package. That he had no problem, he had no problem increasing the federal deficit. He had no problem starting the legislative package that I think definitely contributed to the inflation we were seeing in 2021. Yes. You know what I yes. mean? That, yeah, the inflation didn't start yes, till absolutely. 2021, but part of that was absolutely because of the things that the Repub a Republican president did. And and Biden can, you know, continued a lot of those same policies, but in many ways it's not that different. You know, what those yes. what the two presidents did both in terms of COVID response and in terms of their financial you know, lack of restraint was right on par with each other. Yes, yes, and and Biden, the effect of Biden's things would have been significantly less. If if Trump had been more con, uh, more fiscally uh, conservative, mm -hmm. I don't even like that term in this situation because it makes it sound like conservatives are fiscally conservative. And they're they're just no. Not you mean conservative really. in the non political <laughs> I sense? I mean, I mean, if he were wiser with the money and didn't and just spent less of it, you know, we're we're more afraid to to blow out the deficits and things. Um, then there would be perhaps no significant inflation at this or point, or less uh, inflation, at least less. Yes, right. It, it would be within the normal ranges that's always happening that people just accept, even though it's terrible, very terrible.
<laughs> just wanted, in case there was you thought that was an accident anybody <laughs> no yeah and it's it's worth noting like you know we've got the 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 fed chairman is talking about the the inflation fix that they're going to be working yeah. on which is going to be to raise interest rates you know that the for for a long time the fed has manipulated the interest rates in order to manipulate inflation and how that works is is so simple and yet so confusing at the same time. Um, inflation has to do with with the cost of things, right? You know, the cost of goods and services. Yeah. And let me just interject. It's, it's confusing in part because the word inflation has used to mean one thing and now means something else. It used to be strictly limited uh, and now means any price increase. Any price increase. But but what we're talking about with inflation and and what we think is actually going on is an increase in the money supply and and that takes place through a number of ways you know first the the federal government can can print more dollars you know what i mean you can they can print more money and and give that money to people and therefore people have more money but the way the economy works is much more complicated today and the way currency works is much more complicated when when you buy a house you don't present cash to purchase that house. Or if you get a loan to purchase that house, you don't go to the bank and get a and get a briefcase full of, you know, 350 <laughs> grand in hundred dollar bills to then give to to the owner of the house to pay for it. It's not how it works. It's all digital, right? It's all a digital world of currency that's very hard to quantify. And how that digital reserve changes things is that how much money you actually have is kind of illusory because I have so and so many dollars, let's say $1,000 in my bank account, you know, and you've got $1,000 and a hundred other people have $1,000 all deposited in my bank. Well, that bank doesn't just sit on that $100,000. They take 90,000 of those hundred, that $100,000 and they go and they invest it or they they loan it to someone else. And so what happens, and that's called fractional reserve banking. And so what happens is that my dollars aren't actually in the bank, and yet I act like they are. And what that does is it creates the illusion that there's more money out there than there actually is. And that's a form of what I would call credit expansion, where through credit, we actually create more money. It's not real money. The money's not there, but it creates the illusion of more money. And because of that illusion, people spend more like they have more. And it creates the same effect as classical inflation, where you're just printing more dollars. And that's exactly what happens when the Fed lowers the interest rate, because the Fed is actually going to loan money to banks and other companies at an artificially low rate. And then because of that artificially low rate, those banks are then more likely to loan money to other people at an, an artificially lowered rate and increase the amount of lend of lended money, of loaned money, loaned <laughs> money. I know lended isn't right. Money on lend, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds nice, lended, but it's not right. Of, of <laughs> money that they have then loaned to other people thus creating a credit expansion and inflating the currency. Right. And you, you say uh, the money is artificially uh, artificially uh, cheaper rates. Uh-huh. Um, 
by the artificial element here is that they have picked the rate at which they're going to loan this money mm -hmm. that they've created, as opposed to the rate being set by a, by a, a market, market. Which, where you have uh, certain amounts of money actually saved and set aside for investment. And that then that money is what is available, and there's competition for that money. And so it's, it's allocated to the most productive, you know, in theory, they, they're trying to allocate it to the most productive areas. And as such, because there's a supply and there's a demand, you get a set price. And the price for money across time is the interest rate. Mm -hmm. This is, it's, it's a, it's a valuation of how, how, how valuable is money now compared to the future? And, you know, depending on the length of time, um, you, you assess that and, and that, that very complicated, not complicated, but that, that calculus that makes up the skill of banking, essentially mm -hmm. being able to find the productive enterprises and, and take money that's just currently being saved or be, wants to be invested and put it into productive enterprises, um, that are going to reliably give you a return, uh, or in, in some cases directly investing in business and stocks and things like that. That art is neglected, set aside, along with all the information it generates, in favor of the Fed saying, what would be good for the whole is to have this set amount. Mm -hmm. And then they steer it artificially. Mm -hmm. that's, why the, that's why I say artificial. There's a, there, is, there is a mechanism by which exchange automatically develops, uh, would, would give you some numbers that reflect goods and consumer preference and things. And that is being pushed out to the side in favor of an overall theory that says, we want about this amount and that's what's good. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a, it's ultimately a more or less arbitrary number. But. And, and if you're confused, I, I apologize. Um, I, I feel like a monetary policy in the United States is one of the most nonsensical things I've ever looked into. That, <laughs> that the, the more I looked into it, the more I'm like, I, I'm either missing something or this can't be how it, how it really is. But, but no, this is, this is how it's set up. And, and it's based off of uh, longstanding economic beliefs and theories that, that have impacted the United States for a long time. One of those being the belief that inflation is a good thing. Which is why the the Fed has always targeted the Federal Reserve has always targeted an inflation rate of around two percent. So so our Federal Reserve actively is trying to create inflation, and they do that because they believe that inflation cr encourages economic growth, and therefore having some inflation will grow the economy. You know, you know, benefits everybody, hurts nobody. As President Biden said, you know, a while back that everyone loves to make fun of. But that's because that's what everyone believes, that there's this, there's this magic button we can push that's just going to grow the economy with very little cost. And unless it gets too high, it'll just benefit everybody. And so right now, they're not trying to get rid of that inflation. They're right. just trying to reduce it back to what they believe are beneficial levels. Yeah, so to do that, they initially – so to do that, they go through the process Brad was explaining earlier where they, they lend money and they buy bonds and things. And, uh, and they increase uh, the interest rate. And increase the interest rate. Um, and what they're – they're going to raise the, the interest rate by 0.25%. 
six times was the original plan. They've now upped that to raising it 0.5% two times and then additional 025 uh, later. Um, and they're talking about doing it even more aggressively. Uh, mm-hmm. Though nothing is, as far as I know, nothing is set in stone. I think that recent change of 0.5.5 to then several 0.25 ones is the current, uh, currently stands. Um, what this does is it, it's going to uh, try and tamp down the inflation rate. As you're saying, they're, they, they initially force interest rates lower um, in order to increase inflation. And now they're trying to do the opposite. They're trying to increase the interest rate in order to decrease inflation, uh, trying to get a handle on this. What's interesting, uh, so much could be said about this because every time we start talking inflation, it's hard not to try and explain it from the beginning because each piece is built on certain mm-hmm. assumptions and, and the system builds up. So we have several episodes on inflation. If you, if you were, if you really want to know more about the basic process, I would encourage you to go back there. I'll say one quick thing about, about- By the way, we were, yeah, it's worth noting that we were talking about inflation when those stimulus packages came about in 2020 when there was almost zero inflation. In 2020, the inflation rate was almost zero. Yeah. And and some people said, oh, well, well, we haven't seen an increase in inflation because of these stimulus packages, so clearly it's just fine. You're wrong. It's not creating the inflation that everyone was afraid of because it took a solid year after that first started happening, the government spending first started, for there to be any real signs of increasing inflation. Because there's there's a delay in how long these things take. There is a delay, and, and the delay varies depending on the expectations of the of the people. Of consumers. Um, of consumers. Because the what's interesting about all this is that the value is ultimately subjective. The the value of a glass of water is in some ways you might say it's objective, right? Your body needs water to live. <laughs> like there's no there's no question about that you have to be getting fluids into you or you will die um but despite the objective things we could say about the value of water and its utility for for people um in any given moment to any given person the value of a glass of water is subjective Mm -hmm. and by subjective we don't mean uh that there is no fundamental truth to it the words objective and subjective have become twisted to mean, no, we mean opinion versus truth. In the sense that it's relative, as in if you're stuck in a desert with no access to water, yes. water quickly becomes the most valuable thing in the world, and you would trade all the money in your wallet for a drink of water. Versus if you happen to be in a in a modernized economy where you have, you know, you have plumbing that brings water right to your house at an incredibly cheap rate. You know, I mean, in 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 the modern United States, water is is dirt cheap, which is another terrible reference. Now, it's not water is incredibly cheap. Don't get confused, Dan, because um, because dirt costs more than water sometimes. Um, We're gonna start measuring everything in its relative value to dirt instead of dollars. <laughs> I like it, but in that in that sense, you now wouldn't spend an entire whatever you had in your wallet just for a glass of water. That would be insane. Even though the objective value of water has not changed from the desert to your home in a, in a city, what has changed is how much access you have to it. And because of how much access you have to it and for what cost, its subjective value has changed. Right. And that's and that's the the way 
price works on a regular basis. Um, you know, the cost of an orange is incredibly cheap when I go to the grocery store and buy it. But the cost that it would take to ship an orange to the International Space Station so that an astronaut could then eat that orange in space is, and I hate to do this to you, astronomical. <laughs> I'm out. Take care, everybody. We'll see ya. <laughs> no, it, it's it, so much could be said about this because because for years the, I mean, Marx built his entire theory on on assumptions about value about the value about the value of goods that simply aren't true. He didn't realize this. He didn't realize that this was that the value is subjective and has such an important and still to this day some some uh, Marxists have have tried to take this new account. Um, still to this day, a large portion of Marxism just completely misses this and as such uh, is claims that there's some kind of objective value that is being stolen from people. And anyway, that's a topic for another time. Um, but, but, it's, but it's absolutely true that, that value, your valuations of things are subjective. We've talked about a value hierarchy that at any given moment, you're going to be uh, ranking things that are in front of you in terms of their relative value to you, some in terms of economics, some in terms of pleasure, some in terms of, you know, but all of that comes together so that you have one thing that you're going to decide to do because it's better than the rest. Mm-hmm. It's better than the other things. Um, you value it more highly. And, and that value is going to shift in the circumstances. It, and it's, it's a very complicated calculus that happens within an individual and in no other way. Right? An individual makes this calculus and then conveys it through their actions, or this calculus doesn't take place. And the market is the combination of that calculus through many different people. Right? This is why some people have described uh, market interaction as the most powerful computer generation of data possible. And to uh, for central planners to go in places like Russia and be like, okay, we have a million people, so a million people need food and this would be a good meal for them and mm-hmm. you know and this is or a million or even less less complicated we need shoes for a million people in this area let's make a million shoes and let's get them the shoes is to is to assume where that value you know is to is to replace that level of thinking with the valuations that are generated with mm-hmm. the extreme detail and complexity of a human being's life across and the, the million and people. And the more complicated it gets, the more difficult it is to do. Right. Which is why socialist countries have usually been able to do a couple of things. They've usually been able to house and feed their people. And that's about it. That's where they start. It starts to break down at the level of shoes. Once they start yes. trying to clothe people, it becomes more complicated because some people already have clothes and some people don't. And some people want this kind of clothes and some people don't. You know what I mean? You can keep people alive through central planning, but it's incredibly difficult to centrally plan prosperity because the more elements you add, the more complicated it gets. Oh, you you don't want to just feed people, but you want them to be able to eat a variety of foods? Okay, well, how are you going to prioritize people's different interests in different foods? And then, you know, it goes from there and there, and then you incorporate entertainment, and you incorporate right. all these other things that people consume, let, and it becomes much more complicated. Yeah, let alone uh, information that I calculate in terms of values, how hard for me to get it and deal with it, like uh, how far away is the store from me, mm-hmm. and those kind of things. That's the kind of information that is going to be particular to an individual, but in which the central agencies ne- never even have access to, right? The, the things like whether or not starting a restaurant on this street corner that serves this kind of food is going to require such particular information that only individuals 
um, only someone there looking into it with an interest in it and who had looked at other food places, right? It's just the information becomes so particular that a, a centralized body just can't get to it. Anyway, all of this is, all of this follows from the, from this process by which we recognize that actually the valuations of anything is subjective, even if it's just subjective in, even if you had people agree on the value per se of something relative to themselves, it would be subjective in the order in which it presents relative to other things in their life. Which brings us back to inflation and COVID, because what happened at the beginning of COVID is people were very, very uncertain about the economy. They were very, very uncertain about what was going to happen. And what that did is it encouraged people to not spend money because they didn't know if they were going to have a paycheck tomorrow. They didn't know if they were going to have a job tomorrow. They didn't know if there was going to be what was going to happen, you know, tomorrow. And it created a deflationary pressure on the economy. And the, in and the inflation rate dropped incredibly low in the beginning of 2020 for that and a number of factors you know there was pe people weren't just not interested in in buying things on a consumer level but people were less interested in investing in new companies and and things like that you know the entire right. economy was uncertain right it's pretty standard behavior that in in the face of serious uncertainty you stop and yeah, you just hold you stop. wait and see you wait Exactly. And during that period, because of that waiting, because of that, of the initial reaction, you're not going to see the inflation. Um, you're not going to see the effects of the, the relative increase of, of the relative decrease of goods and the increase in, in, in money supply that's going to lead to significant inflation. And then, and then people started getting stimulus packages, but a large number of those people were still unemployed. And so people who are unemployed, they're not exactly going to increase their spending. No, they're just going to use those stimulus packages to purchase what they already would have purchased and might even tighten their belts even while they're getting the stimulus. And then there are still other people who are still uncertain about what the economy was going to do, which created a them to prioritize saving. And, and that occurred for a while until the economy started to pick back up. And as you got in later into 2020 and early into 2021, we started to calm down as a people and realize that things were going to get better. You know what I mean? And there was less of that fear and there was more confidence in the economy and people were still getting stimulus checks. And so what happened is instead of saving those checks because we were afraid of what was going to happen tomorrow, we realized tomorrow was going to be okay and maybe we could get that purchase we'd been putting off. And the consumer mindset changed and people started to spend more and people started to reinvest in the economy and all of that spending that had been held off for a while exploded all at once. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you started to get inflation. You started to get actual inflation and start to see the numbers. See, see that delayed result finally yes. take place and take place more quickly, partly because of that delay. Yeah, yeah, and it and it's interesting because we're in some ways we we may be entering in, entering a new stage. There's an initial fear, hesitancy, hold on, wait, no inflation. You get the spending, you start to see the inflation. Um, the inflation has been going long enough now that the Fed. I mean, the Fed always talks about the possibility of increasing interest rates. They are increasing interest rates, and they may and they're accelerating the increase in interest rates. Um, 
but with the war and things, uh, I mean, you can see how, take one quick step back, you can see how the expectations of the people matter because valuations are ultimately subjective and their expectations are ultimately what define and to mm-hmm. to a degree the the uh the cost of things. Mm-hmm. And so if you expect things to be getting better, like, oh, we're kind of through this, we're over this, prices are going to go down. You know, things are going to return to normal. Start spending, you know, start doing what you're gonna do or whatever. You're things are things are good, things are back to normal. Um but in the next stage, people are starting to become starting to see that the inflation is not going away. You know, there 1% here and there is not a big deal in terms of people's expectations. But we're now at almost 8%. Um, and, and, and it it's may, been around for a while. And it's been around for a while. Once the people begin to accept that the inflation is going to be here, then the answer is to get rid of your money as fast as possible. There was already big spending, uh, big spending because we were, out of that waiting period. Um, but this is, this is the advice you're going to get from investors, right? You, you look it up right now. What do you do dirt with money during an inflationary period? You spend it and you spend it on hard goods. You don't want money because money is going to be worth less tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You want the goods. They're going to retain their value a little bit better. They're going to give you something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You want goods decreasing. or you want invested, but you don't want to have your assets you don't want in cash. US dollars. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, and as the demand for money uh, decreases, as people want to have less money, um, you increase the inflationary effect. Um, you, there's a there's an important relationship here. If people want to hold more money, which they do in the face of uncertainty, at least temporarily, um, then that extra money isn't circulating. Right? It's mm-hmm. it's just being held. It's just being held. Hence the delay in inflation. Hence the 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 apparently the, it's it's interesting to look at the graph because it just stops inflation just stops almost mm-hmm. almost completely um, which is weird it almost mm-hmm. never does that mm-hmm. um, but uh, but as there is a decreased demand decreased what did I just say a decreased demand for money yeah. inflation begins to increase which is to say that for the for for the near future more inflation seems to be coming mm-hmm. because of the and this is just talking in relation to money supply we also are actually having shortages um because of in part because of russia and ukraine in part because the shipping has never quite quite got straightened out yeah has never gotten straightened out since covid um which this and this is where things get really sketchy um because the people's perceptions are so important um it took germany a long time to slide into hyperinflation Hyperinflation being when talking when the currency starts to Germany, right? Yes, yes, we're talking. Uh, yes, wasn't it the thirties, early? 30s? Yes, the thirties. Yes, 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 yes. Um, that's that's right. It is the thirties. Um, it takes them a while to slide into it because people don't believe that the price increases are going to keep happening, and that expectation uh, leads them to hold on to their money more than they would. If they believe that prices are going to start skyrocketing. Which tempers the inflation because people are spending less. Yeah. They go, this is probably going to stop. And so I don't, I don't have to get rid of my money. Mm -hmm. But if you get the people generally accepting that inflation is the norm, that that relatively quick inflation, not just the 2% a year from the Fed, relatively quick inflation is going to be the norm. They're going to get rid of their money 
and they're going to, and that's going to cause more inflation. And that's, that is where things can become a vicious cycle. And, mm-hmm. and especially so if the government then says, well, because of inflation, we need to help you. Mm-hmm. Because of inflation, we're going to try and print more money to do more things. That's, that's when the cycle really starts. It's the people's expectations feeding on top of uh, continued government intervention. Holding a car for no particular reason, just <laughs> fidgeting with it in my hands. <laughs> I'm sure I'm gesturing on the screen, and there's, and a, there's like, a car, what's going on a over little there? toy car. <laughs> um, but yeah, like here's a here's a particular example of what that might look like. Let's look at the gas crisis, right? Gas prices have been going up for a while, and then the the Russia Ukraine stuff breaks out, and gas prices jump way up. And when they jumped way up initially overnight. I didn't want to purchase gas. I was like, I don't want to buy gas at four dollars and thirty cents. Yeah, you get people freaking out. So There's I'm going to here. I'm going to hold off. Instead of refilling my tank at, at half, I'm gonna wait until it's at a quarter or maybe even until it's empty to see if I can get lower prices. Maybe in a couple days things will calm down. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and that and that happened actually when it was at like four ten and prices continued to increase. And I quickly had the thought, well, maybe prices aren't going to go down. And all of a sudden, my priorities changed and I wanted to get gas more. You know, I wanted to fill up more quickly because I was afraid, you know, because I'm like, I'd rather fill up at 410 than fill up at 430. And so I went from holding off to speeding up. And then, and then as prices have actually started to drop cent by cent, I've kind of calmed down and resumed a more normal process. But that's the kind of thing that's happening with inflation where when you think inflation is temporary, when you think the price hike you see at the store is temporary, oh, you know, meat price has gone up or cheese price has gone up or whatever, you're likely to put off purchasing it and wait until next week to see if it's better. But if you think next week everything's going to cost more, you're much more likely to purchase things and maybe even purchase and even stock extra. Up. Yeah, today before the prices go up. And that's what can happen with inflation, especially when everyone believes, as we do now, that inflation is here to stay. Yeah, we joked about uh, the only thing that'd make this worse be price fixing. <laughs> and uh, uh, because then you'd turn the shortages into outages. You'd turn the, um, as people, people buy more, uh, buy at a ratio that doesn't reflect the supply. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and immediately after I, and immediately after I said that, um, there was a bill that proposed basically that in Congress. Though luckily it got little traction. So, mm-hmm. um, luckily Congress's impotence occasionally is useful. <laughs> but uh, anyway, no, and and it's and it's not. It's not crazy to think they might do something like that or do something else like you were saying, which is to help stimulate the economy to fix the problem. Mm-hmm. I've already heard, you know, at least some serious discussions about, well, maybe we should start issuing money to everyone to help pay for the increased cost of gas. You know, everyone should get an yeah. extra gas stipend to to soften the the cost of gas. And that's exactly the kind of thing that can then make the inflation problem continue longer. Right. Right. It's it's just interesting. We were reading reading some stuff for this episode. I stumbled across this this wonderful fact. Um 
the world of inflation is just so normal to us. Mm-hmm. It's so normal. Um, the exact opposite. If you have stable money, the exact opposite should be happening. Prices should go down regularly. We we have increasing prote- productivity through innovation in uh, in actual technology. You know the level of technology, improved ways of doing things, quicker ways of doing things. The level of organization. Um, and and supply lines yeah, and, and uh, specialization. Specialization is this the relative? Yeah, the human our our capacity and skills related to it directly are, are increase. All of these should lead to regular decrease in goods. In the cost um, of goods. In the cost of goods, yes, because we're producing more of them, or yeah. we're producing them easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and that is not what we ever see. Yeah, so what we should be seeing is actual deflation, yeah. where the cost deflation of goods, in the general sense that I that we we often distinguish between when we're talking about inflation, because inflation used to be the increase yeah, in not, money supply. Deflation used to be the decrease of money yeah, supply. Yeah, thanks. For we're talking fine. deflation in the sense of costs just generally decreasing. Mm-hmm. Which you're right is not a true deflation, but it appears very similar. And, yeah, and is called by the people would who be look called at by these things. People, yeah, deflation. deflation. Yeah, which is that the cost of goods would go down year over year. Yes, and um, the cost of goods. This was not only could this be true. This was true for most of American history, at least from the eighteen hundreds to nineteen forty. The cost of goods decreased generally. Generally, with the exception of wartime inflation periods, because the governments would spend a bunch and you'd get inflation. Mm-hmm. And the few, there were a couple periods where there were uh, large gold discoveries that, that increased the supply so much that you got because inflation. Because otherwise, that way. The, mm-hmm. the money supply was fixed because the money supply was, tr- was tied Relatively to Relatively fixed, yeah, because it was tied, tied to gold. gold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and outside of those times, outside of the wartime uh, and the, uh, the gold discoveries, periods uh you had goods getting cheaper which which is like it just makes sense that's what should happen and yet we live in a world that's so we were talking about if the world went back to you know if if i if you got the government systems out of the way so that this were how this were more the norm again people would be you could actually get paid less next year but be richer You could your your salary could go down, and you could make more. You could be absolutely better off and more prosperous. And and more often than not, that probably wasn't what was happening. More often than not, what was happening is you'd started a job, and you'd get paid the next year and the next year that same wage. You know, instead of getting the annual promotion that we're all used yes, to, yes, yes, but your income would be growing every year. You know, you'd be able yes. to afford more than you could the year before, even though your income didn't change or it only changed a little bit or it only changed based off of actual merit and promotions. <laughs> yes, yes. You know yes, what I mean? It doesn't it make is. sense for entry level positions to increase, you know, every year if it weren't for inflation. That really, you know, people's entry-level positions are not changing, you know. Where I work, the entry-level positions have jumped, you know, about $6 an hour increase over the last six years. 
Yeah, which is like a what almost fifty percent increase. Yeah, like forty percent, which is huge until you factor in inflation and it becomes much smaller. Not nothing, but much much smaller when you add the inflation over those past six years. I mean, just the last year alone, where you had that eight percent, that takes a huge chunk out of it in terms of real wages, in terms of real income. You may not be gaining nearly as much as you think, but we're so used to this illusion of constantly progressing. You know what I mean? Yeah, the numbers must be getting better or we're getting worse. Yeah, they're always getting better. We're always making more. The economy is always bigger than the year before because of inflation, because of what's really, when it comes down to it, a lie. Yeah, it's all part of, as you said, use the word illusion. That is, it is a grand illusion. Um on a scale that it, that is hard to understand until you start digging into it but it it really is an illusion it's a it's a things appear one way when they are entirely different mm-hmm. and it's, it's extremely deceptive and it's the it it is the purpose of the federal reserve to make it happen in a way that the people don't really perceive it because mm-hmm. if you could perceive it if you perceived it properly then the expectations would change and it wouldn't work it wouldn't, you, you have to have like this layer of, of deceit. They have to operate in secret. They have to be buying the, uh, you know, interacting with businesses and banks, the banking system, um, in complete secrecy. Congress doesn't know what they do with the money, right? It gets, it gets reports that give them some details, but the, the specific details and how it, how it goes through, uh, businesses and banks, um, are hidden. Mm-hmm. There, that's why there's been calls to like audit the Federal Reserve for years because, People want to know where the money's going, you know, how much exactly and when, to whom and when. Yeah, uh, because that, because that matters. That's a, that's a glaring problem with inflation because the thing is, is inflation hurts people across the board, right? When there's a 5% inflation rate, then anyone who spends money is hurt and people who spend the majority of their income are hurt the most. You know what I mean? Because if you have someone like Elon Musk who only spends, you know, a million dollars a year but makes several billion, he actually doesn't get as hurt by inflation as someone who makes $100,000 a year but spends 80000 of it. You know what I mean? Because such a small percentage of his income is actually impacted by inflation. Yes. So, so middle class and low income people are disproportionately affected by inflation, but how much they benefit from it from, you know, because the inflation is going somewhere, right? You know, the inflation is being, because it's, it's, the inflation appears across time, but the money has to appear with someone first. Exactly. Inflation is mm -hmm. a counterintuitive tax because instead of collecting money from people and then giving it to someone else, what you're doing is you're creating money out of thin air and giving it to someone. And then down the line, people then have to pay for it through the increased cost of goods. And so, so the people have already been paid. You know, we got our stimulus checks over the past two years and we think that's where the money went. But that was a tiny fraction of this cost of inflation. You know, if we had just done stimulus checks, it would have, we wouldn't have needed a three trillion dollar deficit. You know, only <laughs> only a few hundred billion of that was actually 
the stimulus checks, but it went to so many different other places. And that deficit was not the only cause of that inflation. When the Federal Reserve is loaning out that money at incredibly low interest rates, who are they loaning that money to? Where are they getting that money from? Those play a real part in who's winning and who's losing in this game of inflation. Yeah, in a and there's there's problems with the poker game analogy, but it's so useful in a couple ways. Um, and this is one of those ways. This is like saying what we need to do in this, we've got this poker game, there's a certain amount of money in the pot, there's a certain amount of chips on the table. And the chips correspond to the money in the pot. And what they're doing is they're saying, we, we really need to do is increase the number of chips. And we're gonna give some to everybody. And everyone gets really excited. Mm -hmm. oh, I'm going to get some chips. Look, I can see these chips. <laughs> I can I can see exactly how much better off than I was relative to how many chips I had before. But the chips are never important. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's actually the money underneath. And throughout this process, they're handing large chunks of chips to other players. And in the end, we're going to, you know, we're in some sense, we're going to calculate all the chips and you're going to get a portion of the pot that corresponds to your relative number of chips. Uh-huh. And it's that relative number that is hidden. And, the, and as it becomes more apparent that there are more chips than you expected, people adjust their valuations, right? But, and, that's, and that's the inflation in things. But it's, there, is a, there is a theft happening. And it's, and it's from all the people who are not getting large amounts of chips. And no, that's almost everybody, right? It's a very small group that's really benefiting from this. No, in that analogy, the only way your actual wealth could be increasing is if you got a disproportionate number yes. of chips. If you got more chips than someone else. Yes. Which means and the that's only way people can benefit by inflation is by having someone else take a loss. Yeah. Yeah. The other way is because as you were saying, we were talking about inflation plays out across time, whereas you can you can get the benefit. If you get the money early and you know what's happening, you can spend it soon. And so you get the full value of your dollar. Uh Whereas other people are going to get a portion of the value, right? Mm -hmm. And Which so the people who losing. spend first, yes, yes. The people who spend first are benefiting expensive people who bent or who spend later. And, and often we don't know when the money's printed and who it's given to. So of mm -hmm. course they spend first and it's, you know, it's years before the inflation plays out and the cost comes from the rest of us. And, and. There's so many things going on here, but I want to note one thing, which is that when you have continued inflation, it changes how people choose to use money. And one of the ways yes. is, as you just said, who benefits? The person who spends first, which means who benefits the least or who pays the most is the person who doesn't spend. In other words, the person who saves. Yeah. And so when you know that there's inflation, what should you not do? is just hold on to your money, is just save your money. You have to get rid of that money and get rid of it as quickly as possible. So what does it encourage people to do, especially because most people are in a position to invest on a serious level? Mm -hmm. It means that in, instead of spending, they just, and instead of saving, they just spend and spend as quickly as possible. And so it encourages people to be fiscally irresponsible on a personal level simply by yeah. inflating, you know, the currency. Yeah, and the modern the modern economic theory that's generally accepted by by the western world believes that that is what you want. You want government policies to encourage people to be fiscally irresponsible. And that that's that in the end is better for everybody because demand is what's important. It's it's so messed up. 
it's so messed up. It, it, it is. It's that too. Um, this idea that, that maybe if we're all fiscally irresponsible, everything will work out. Like, can you, can you imagine trying to pitch that to like a small town or like a, it, it doesn't, it no, makes and, and exactly we've broken zero this, sense. And we've broken mm-hmm. this down before. Like the idea that the, the answer to everything is just more consumption, that if we consume more by definition, we'll have to create more just so we can consume it is so illogical. You know what I mean? That when you think of it in terms of like a small town with the limited resources is focusing on consumption doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? No, increases in productivity are ultimately what increase the, the, you know, bring up the poverty level, the prosperity of the people. Mm -hmm. And, and those occur through long-term planning and diligence and innovation. Like it's not a, it's not a, a spending spree has never been the path to prosperity for anybody. Um, it, it only, it only makes sense in a sphere in which you have a group of insiders and a group of outsiders. Mm-hmm. And the group of outsiders are playing a different game than the group of, than the group of, I don't, I don't remember which one I said, than the other people. And, <laughs> and, uh, and one group is, benefiting at the expense of the others mm-hmm. and, and the people who are convinced that the best thing they can do for the economy is to go blow their cash irresponsibly in a way that's irresponsible to themselves and their family and, and their future is being sold a pack of lies mm-hmm. and and that doesn't even get into a whole nother subset of an inflation issue which is malinvestment which yeah. which is where you yes. create Basically, is that when you put inflation into the economy, when you when you have credit expansion, when you manipulate the interest rate, it creates misinformation for businesses. And I hate to use that word, but that's literally what <laughs> it's it is. Such a loaded is that, term now. <laughs> is that it tells businesses that costs are lower than they actually are, and encourages them to invest in more than they're actually capable of sustainably investing in. And of course, investment is good, right? Investment is what we want, but investment doesn't do anyone any good if a year after the investment is started, the whole project gets scrapped because they realized it was a mistake because they thought they could afford it when really they couldn't. And that's the kind of problem you have with this malinvestment where you have people investing in projects that they shouldn't have invested in and you have money going into parts of the economy that didn't actually deserve it, that didn't warrant it, that didn't have the productivity that was necessary. And so you actually result in in waste, in inefficiency, because the market is responding to illusion is what's yes. happening. You've created a massive illusion that people believe. And because people are the ones who are steering the market, they use that illusion to make decisions that result in inefficiency because it was a lie. Right. This is, is the this simplest is, way of putting it. In a, in a specific sphere, when this happens in a, a particular sphere and uh, – and then it starts to come crashing down. What we call this is the bubble, right? That the mm-hmm. bubble has popped. And, and what was the bubble? It was, it was malinvestment, ultimately. It was people acting on bad information in large part often because, you know, people act on bad information all the time. But in on these cases, scale. it's on a massive scale because the good information was hidden underneath all of the, uh, all of the Federal Reserve tampering and, uh, and such. So yeah. Anyway, this, our economy, if you're not getting the sense yet, our economy does not look, is, is not natural. It's not how things would function 
if you left people to to steer to steer it according to what was you know good principles and wisdom um and if they and if they made decisions that were good for them and for the people around them um it wouldn't look like this this is mm-hmm. a this is a very uh, there's Distorted analogies system. to yeah there's analogies to it being this engine and we got to keep it running and all these all these other uh mechanical theories about the government is this great mechanic who who makes this whole thing work mm-hmm. and uh and the result is that it's it's not it's not a market first off it's a it's a market some some elements of it are market built on top of a very convoluted thing but it's it's a mess and it's and it's the norm and mm-hmm. has been at least since the 1940s and and bringing it back to where we started when when president biden and, and i believe me we're not trying to single him out he's just the representative of our current government but when when biden and others are are spinning their tales of economic growth and other things like that it's all part of propping up this massive illusion and we need to remember that because because that's what it is it is an illusion yeah. and breaking through that barrier and realizing it is an illusion and it is a lie is what's going to help us in the long run it's going to help us to cuz first you have to understand reality before you can even attempt to get back to reality because the problem is right now is that the illusions are so powerful and so normal that we don't even know what what a real market would look like you know what i mean we're so far distant from it we don't know what a natural interest rate would be we don't know what normal unemployment would look like because all we see are the manipulated numbers and the first thing we need in order to fix the economy is to see the truth beyond the illusion this is the this is where i have some enthusiasm for cryptocurrencies not because most of them are just trying to be the Federal Reserve <laughs> and do it better, but some of them are not, and uh, and and that's great. If there are multiple and they're competing, then you can then you can get a feel for what's stable and what's valuable and what isn't. Um, and that we could we could learn so much more about currency if we had competing currencies, but we don't. We have one centrally planned, and everything is thought of in terms of that currency, and so it's all it it all is affected by this and this is we could we could talk about the ruble right the ruble is what happens when uh when some of the pieces get pulled out of your Mm -hmm. out of what supports your your modern currency that's got all these no and it's something that happens on a regular basis to countries in the modern world and it's not something that we're immune from yes could happen to us we are somewhat yes as a as a just a final point the reason the petrodollar is important, which is that most oil deals use the U.S. dollar, the U.S. dollar, means that those groups have to hold a certain amount of U.S. dollars in order to participate in this market. And so it protects the U.S. dollar from the kinds of things that have happened yeah. to other currencies. Yes, it, it has the same effect as when people were afraid and uncertain and they held their money. Mm-hmm. This is a set amount of money that's going to be held and going to be removed from from exchange, which if it enters the exchange, you know, if the petrodollar collapses, if people go, you know what, we're going to trade in the Chinese currency, the yuan or whatever it is, and uh, or others, um, then, a, then an enormous amount of money that had been held is going to be injected and you're going to get 
probably more ridiculous inflation. <laughs> it's gonna. Be, I don't know. I have no uh, actual sense. We were talking about this. We have no idea what the actual numbers are in terms of actual held currency by foreign countries because they they have to to engage in the oil market. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they didn't have to, they wouldn't, and that would uh, that would significantly decrease the demand for our money and therefore increase the inflation. Yeah, and devalue the do- dollar. And devalue the dollar. Yep. Yep. So good times ahead. Everybody get excited. <laughs> get excited. Food shortages from Ukraine is the latest news from from uh, from those kind of things. But yeah, I don't know. The economy in some ways. Well, let's just say that I feel like change would be good. Unfortunately, we're not going to get change without some massive collapse. And I don't want that. So the illusion is terrible. The collapse of the illusion will be extraordinarily awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's the problem is that you have to either accept some pain now or much worse pain in the future. And we've consistently chosen much worse pain in the future because we're not willing to accept some pain now, which is why I was talking about breaking through the illusion. Because the only way we'll accept some pain now, which is some form of a recession in yes. order to get back to normalcy, is to understand that we're only doing it in order to avoid the much worse catastrophe in the future. We don't want yes. the system to collapse. We want the system to actually come back to a balance in order to avoid a collapse in the future. And yes. that's what breaking down the illusion is all about, is seeing that reality. Yes, and and re- part of it is revealing the pain that is happening now that is always obscured. Being hidden, yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm-hmm. And all with right. that, thank you for listening. Take care. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.